the French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone, and welcome to Grey History. In the last episodes, we've covered rebellious nobles and revolting parlements. Well, now it's the people's turn. Titled The Cradle of the Revolution, in this episode we're going to dive deep into the revolt of Grenoble, otherwise known as the Day of Tiles. We're also going to be jumping into the ramifications of this revolt because they are significant. Perhaps the most significant was the return of an individual who was loathed by the court and loved by the people. So without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 7, The Cradle of the Revolution. On the 3rd of May, 1788, the Paris Parlement declared the fundamental laws of the kingdom. The Parlement was seeking to entrench its position while simultaneously pressure the government into calling in a states-general. In the short term, the plan undoubtedly backfired. The bear had been poked one too many times. Having failed to reason with the Parlement of Paris, having failed to intimidate it, having failed to coerce it, the government finally moved to suppress it. On the 8th of May 1788, two days after the arrest of Dias Premenil and Gossard, King Louis XVI followed the steps of his predecessor and suppressed the Parlement for the second time in less than 20 years. The suppression efforts of the government were led by a man named Christian Francois de Le Moignan de Basville. Le Moignan was the king's keeper of the seals, and Le Moignan and his counterparts knew that the suppression of the Parlement would be met with hostility from the broader public. The government was, after all, assaulting the self-styled defenders of the people, the fathers of the nation, and, as such, an assault could definitely backfire, and backfire dramatically. Anticipating backlash and thus trying to contain it immediately, Le Moignan introduced a reform package on the 8th of May which dramatically reshaped the French judicial system. The government was hoping that if it reformed the judicial system in ways that favoured the Third Estate, the Commons would not rush to defend the Parlements. A new plenary court was established to register the king's edicts, while lower courts around the country would be promoted to help replace the regional parlements. The troublesome parlements would continue to exist, but they would be rendered little more than pompous courts exclusive for the nobility. The reorganisation of the courts was significant for the bourgeoisie. For the first time in decades, ambitious members of the Third Estate could resume climbing the social ladder. The reforms opened the top positions of the judicial system to men of talent and not just men of noble blood. It was hoped that in aiding the bourgeoisie's quest for advancement, as well as making popular reforms to the prison system as well as the death penalty, the common people would return the favour and support the government's quest to avoid both bankruptcy and a state general. On the surface, 
it seemed like the government had a good crisis management plan. The devil, however, was in the detail. Things hadn't been accounted for. Whatever good the reforms may have done, they inevitably created winners and losers, and the most severe losers were the towns which had parlements. If the regional parlements lost their monopoly on justice to newly promoted courts, these same towns would also lose the various economic benefits which came with holding that monopoly. In a city like Paris, the proportion of the population that was employed by the Paris Parlement would not have been overly high, and therefore not high enough to seriously jeopardise the local economy. But there were 12 other Parlements, some in much smaller urban communities. In these smaller centres, Le Bognon was effectively proposing a double hit. Not only would judicial power be dispersed to rival towns as decentralisation of the administration of justice occurred, but a significant proportion of that town's economy would dissipate in the process. Everyone from wig makers to lawyers, pamphleteers to coach drivers had a reason in these smaller urban communities to resist the government's reforms. Self-interested resistance didn't end at the city walls either. Neighbouring peasants and local merchants relied on the employed to purchase their goods. The government was threatening to make their most valuable customers mere window shoppers. The result of these reforms was the rapid spread of unrest throughout certain provinces. The regions of Brittany, Bern, Burgundy, Flanders, French Comte and Provence all experienced violent unrest, and all of these regions had a local parlement to protect. Paris was by no means quiet, but it was outside of France's largest city where the king's authority was deteriorating with speed. The people generally perceived that the parlements were their defenders, and now they were intent on repaying the favour. Furthermore, the fact that certain towns also had their own livelihoods to consider only added energy to an enthusiastic defence. The government's tactic of appealing to the Third Estate with favourable reforms seemed to be failing. The British Charge d'Affaires in Paris recorded the situation. In Dauphine and the provinces, no taxes whatever can be collected, and accounts of some fresh act of revolt and disobedience arrive every day from different parts of the kingdom. The question was, could the Crown outlast these acts of disobedience? Could it hold on? Could it pursue the reforms and come out the other side in one piece? Probably not. But we don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is that one particular act of disobedience brought the government to its knees. One particular revolt compelled the king to finally submit, to finally summon an Estates General. That revolt was the Revolt of Grenoble. The revolt in Grenoble was not a great revolt. There was violence, but not a great amount of violence. There was blood, but not a great amount of blood. There was chaos and anarchy, but not a great amount of those things either. With the exception of a great amount of looted wine, there's not too many great things about the revolt of Grenoble. Except, of course, its importance. Its importance was great. The significance of the revolt lies in two things. Firstly, what it results in, a situation that historian Robert Johnson describes as almost civil war. The second, and potentially more interestingly, what it foreshadows. For in Grenoble, we see, for the briefest of moments, the darkness that will come to devour France's virtuous revolution. On the 20th of May, 1788, the Parlement of Dauphine joined the rebellion of the other regional Parlements in open opposition to the Crown. In order to suppress the troublesome nobles, letters de cachet were served to the judges on the 7th of June, a Saturday. 
Saturday is a problematic day if you're the local government and you want to enact something that the local populace isn't overly happy about. Why? Well, Saturday is market day. That's right, market day. What's so special about market day, you ask? Well, on a market day, the peasants are in town. The peasants who hated the proposed judicial reforms because of what they might do to the local economy. If the Parlement of Dauphine lost its regional monopoly on justice, many of the peasants' customers, the wig makers to the coach drivers, the clerks to the tailors, might become former customers. Thus the peasants, packed into town for market day, were equally as fearful and as energised as the local inhabitants about protecting the local Parlement. In short, Grenoble was a tinderbox awaiting a flame, and the authorities were kind enough to provide one. On the morning of the 7th, rumours began to swell that government troops were about to forcibly remove the judges from Grenoble and close the Parlement down. As a result, the people began to mobilise. While witnessing the masses beginning to stir, the commander of the troops, the Duc de Clermontier, made a rookie move, a stumble that had profound consequences. In order to contain the situation, and to prevent it from becoming a full-fledged revolt, the Lieutenant-General of the Dauphine sent out his men in small detachments. Their orders were to try to quell the crowd. Instead of pacifying the citizens, the appearance of the troops merely agitated them further. To make matters worse, the small detachments, outnumbered severely by the crowd, did little to intimidate the now freshly provoked masses. The result was bloodshed. This revolt on the 7th of June 1788 is known as the Day of Tiles. Its name originates from how the crowd reacts to this half-baked attempt by the authorities to contain it. The people of Grenoble took to the rooftops. I cannot confirm how they got onto the rooftops. I personally have this image of them scurrying up the walls like Moria goblins in the Fellowship of the Ring. But it's kind of irrelevant how they got to the rooftops. It's what they did while they were up there that matters. Once above the troops, the people let it rip. The king's men came under fire. Not from bullets, not from balrogs, but from tiles. The populace quite literally picked up tiles from the rooftops of the city and bombarded the troops below. As the projectiles rained upon the king's men, bullets were soon sent in the other direction. In the brief chaos that followed, it's rather miraculous that the death toll stood at only a few souls, including, unfortunately, a 12-year-old boy. But as I've already said, the Day of Tiles was not a great revolt in terms of its violence, its bloodshed, or its anarchy. It perhaps could have been had the Duke sought to cement his place in the history books using his sword as a pen, but he did not. The troops promptly withdrew from the city and the Parlement was left in its place. The people, like the judges, had successfully stared down the government. The lack of blood, or the lack of death for that matter, does not disqualify the revolt from a prominent place within the history of the French Revolution. The Day of Tiles is significant because of the fallout which occurs from this dramatic event. Firstly, the Parlement's judges began to question if they really wanted to be left in their place. The royal authorities were threatening their professions, sure, but they weren't threatening their safety nor their property. Now stuck in a rioting city with a mob that was looting the wine cellars of the governor's house, the Parlement of Dauphine was beginning to think differently about their ally, the common people. In theory, the principle of mobilising the masses seemed such a good way to resist royal authorities. But once in practice, however, that hypothesis was tested significantly. Having unintentionally mobilised the citizenry, 
Some members of the Parlement were frightened of their newly created weapon, which had been let loose upon the town. Accustomed to order and civility, many judges began to fear the power of their saviours, so much so that some used the cover of darkness to escape the city. Other occupants of the town were just as horrified by the violence as the judges themselves. While many historians paint the revolt of Grenoble as a popular revolt that enjoyed the support of all citizens, historian Peter Kruupkin paints the picture very differently. The middle classes of Grenoble were in a state of terror. During the night, they organised a militia of citizens and took possession of the town gates, as well as some of the military posts, which they yielded to the troops soon after. Cannons were trained on the rebels, while the Parlement took advantage of the darkness to disappear. From June 9 to 14, reaction triumphed, but on the 14th, news came that there had been a rise-in at Bassenson, and the Swiss soldiers had refused to fire on the people. Upon this, the people's spirit revived, and it was proposed to convoke the estates of the province. The Parlement of Dauphine had used the cover of darkness to slip away, to escape their own rescuers. Their rescuers who, in a sense, were now, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps unknowingly, perceived to be their captors. The Parlement of Dauphine had come to the same conclusion that the Parlement of Paris was reaching, that potentially they were playing with fire. Potentially they could get burnt. Potentially they should try to find a way to acquire a bucket of water and put this fire of civil disobedience out before it got out of control. The Parlements had, after all, always been conducting a very fine balancing act. They had always been trying to burn down their neighbour's house without burning down their own. The Parlements shared the same foundational stones as the monarchy. They were both creatures of old regime France. They were both endangered in an Enlightenment world. As the people stirred more often and more violently, an increasing number of judges began to question the wisdom of making an alliance with the plebs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history, as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. The second ramification of the Day of Tiles, besides the judges questioning their newfound allies, was exactly what robbed the Parlement of the bucket of water they were looking for. Or, more accurately, some of them were looking for. 
In Grenoble, some members of the radical wings of the judiciary did not fear the masses, and in the power vacuum created by the absence of the king's authority, these radicals showed how a few skilled orators could manipulate the chaos to their advantage and achieve their own goals. One such judge was Jean-Joseph Meunier. Meunier used the disarray that the Day of Tiles created to force the summoning of the Estates of Dauphine, a provincial miniature Estates General which hadn't met since 1649. In summoning its provincial estates, Grenoble cemented its place as the cradle of the revolution. There would finally be an Estates General in France. Occurring at a provincial level, this Estates General would not have represented all of France, but all of France was nonetheless watching. Its impact on national affairs was significant. Historian Robert Johnson describes the situation and what followed as the dust settled on Grenoble and as the city prepared to hold the estates of the Dauphine. This was almost civil war and threatened to plunge France back into the conditions of two centuries earlier. The government ordered troops to Grenoble to put down the movement. The commanding general, however, on arriving near the city, found the situation so alarming that he agreed to a compromise, whereby the estates were to hold a meeting, but not in the capital of the province. Accordingly, at the village of Vassil on the 21st of July, several hundred persons assembled, representing the three orders, nobility, clergy, and third estate of the province, and of these it had been previously agreed that the third estate should be allowed double representation. The leading figure of the assembly of Vassil was Jean-Joseph Meunier. He was a middle-class man, a lawyer, upright, intelligent yet moderate, who felt the need of reform and who was prepared to labour for it. He inspired all the proceedings at Vassil, and as secretary of the estates, had the chief part in drawing up its resolutions. These demanded the convocation of the Estates General of France, pledged the province to refuse to pay all taxes not voted by the Estates General, and called for the abolition of arbitrary imprisonment on the king's order by the warrant known as Letter de Cachet. What a challenge to royal authority. Have you ever seen someone challenge authority? Perhaps an employee argue with their boss, a player question their coach, or a padawan disobey their master? The questioning of authority in those situations, the challenging of established power dynamics, can in and of itself be considered extraordinary. Take, for example, the recent controversy surrounding American football and NFL players kneeling for the national anthem. Some people consider these events extraordinarily courageous. Others consider it extraordinarily disrespectful. Whatever one's point of view, I think we can all agree that the challenging of established social norms and power structures which is occurring there is itself extraordinary. Or at least, it's generated an extraordinarily large amount of attention from the press, the public, and even the president. What the estates were doing in Dauphine was on a whole other level. It makes public stints of defiance by NFL players look like child's play. This body, the Estates of Dauphine, was challenging the king. It was challenging the king by its very existence. It was challenging the king with every words of its declarations. It was challenging the king by encouraging the rest of the country to join the resistance. In challenging the king, the body was challenging the state itself. It was challenging the government and all the legal and military power it had at its disposal. Furthermore, it was doing so in a manner that was the very definition of public. Such a challenge had to have consequences. 
I suppose it should come as no surprise that a body which in and of itself was revolutionary made revolutionary demands. It's about as surprising as a vegan telling you that they're a vegan. What fueled the revolutionary character of this body was the unique composition of the Facile Assembly itself. Unlike the Estates Generals of the past, the composition of this body was dramatically different. The representatives of the privileged classes were outnumbered by the number of representatives of the people. Roughly 300 men represented the Third Estate, with 50 clergymen representing the First Estate and no less than 165 nobles representing the Second Estate. Foreshadowing future developments, not a single bishop could be found amongst the clergymen. The church was represented by common priests. This structure and composition allowed the estates of the Dauphine to be dominated by the commons. Antoine Barnev described the events as the initial foundations of a democratic revolution, and considering the language used by Jean-Joseph Meunier, it undoubtedly was. The young orator declared that The rights of man derive from nature alone and are independent of conventions. Here, the assembly was undoubtedly challenging the very foundations of the old regime. It was challenging the traditions and the identity of the French nation, the justification for the status quo. And, judging by the ramifications as described by historian Robert Johnson, the challenge had its desired effect. The effect of the resolutions of the Assembly of Vassil throughout France was immediate. They were simple, direct, and voiced the general feeling. They also indicated that the moment had come for interfering in the chronic mismanagement of affairs. So irresistible was their force that Le Maine de Brienne and the King accepted them with hardly a struggle. From the point of view of the government, things were now spiralling out of their control. By the time five weeks had passed from the well-publicised Facile Assembly, as the Estates of Dauphine were often called, France was a very different place. On the 8th of August, Louis had agreed to call an Estates General for the 1st of May, 1789, now less than a year away. On the 25th of August, Brienne, facing an immediate bankruptcy and having failed miserably while in office, finally resigned. Adding to the humiliation, Brienne had to suspend government payments as one of his final acts. After derailing Cologne with the Assembly of Notables, only to be derailed by them, after attempting to suppress the Parlements, only to increase their popularity, after avoiding an Estates General for so long, only to witness one occur at Versailles, the Minister had no choice but to go. Historian Charlie Matthews sums up his departure. Abandoned by the clergy, disobeyed by the army, fought by the parlements and the courts, hated by the nation, Brienne yielded and resigned, through the Queen's favour to be consoled by the money he had made and the gift of a cardinal's hat. Well, at least Brienne became a cardinal, I suppose. His predecessor Cologne was still in exile in London. We digress, though. What deserves our attention, however is not necessarily what you may think. It is not that an Estates General has finally been called, nor is it who will replace Brienne as the Treasury runs empty and bankruptcy looms on the immediate horizon. We'll get to those things, but what deserves our attention now is a shift in the public debate. While Grenoble for a time may style itself as the cradle of the revolution because of the Day of Tiles and the Facile Assembly, I would argue it is the cradle of the revolution for a third reason. The tone, the style, the verbiage in the press underwent a significant transformation during the spring and summer of 1788. 
It's in this shift that one can see an aristocratic revolt morph into a revolutionary one. It's in this shift that it becomes clear that the Third Estate was preparing to upend the political dynamics of the realm, especially as they began to develop a sense of identity. So, what did this tonal shift look like? It can be summed up in two words. The first is nation, and the second is treason. The Third Estate began to identify themselves as the nation, with the two privileged classes not necessarily part of it. In fact, the privileged elites could be considered leeches, parasites, viruses, depending on the publication you were reading. This concept was not new, but the doubling of the Third Estate's representative at the Vassil Assembly helped bring the issue of representation, and indeed sovereignty, to the foreground of public debate. Adding to the tensions between orders was Lamion's judicial reforms. While a complete failure in the Dauphine, the rise of prominent members of the Third Estate at the expense of the nobility in key judicial posts was creating the wedge the government had hoped for in other regions of the country. As other provinces looked to reinstate their own provincial estates general, bitter disputes were breaking out about how many delegates the third should have in these bodies. These tensions spilt into the press. For the first time, questions about what it meant to be a citizen became prominently debated in the public arena. It was argued by some that only those who comprised the third estate, or defended its interests, could truly claim to be a citizen of the nation. The implications of this line of thinking was clear. Sovereignty rested with the people, and, more importantly, with those who they felt represented them. Oppose these individuals, and you oppose the nation. Oppose the nation, and you are a traitor. Treason was the second key word that marks this debate. The second key word in this tonal shift amongst the press, the other side of the coin. In such a heated political environment, you are either with the nation, or against it. Treason would be a buzzword during the reign of terror that was to come the justification used for many innocent deaths. But even as early as July 1788, one can start to see the signs of the eventual willingness of the mob and their revolutionary leaders to use violence against those who they perceived to be traitors to the nation. As the Fasil Assembly approached, the citizens of Grenoble started to wear the colours of Humbert II. This was done in order to show support for the upcoming assembly. Those who were not wearing the colours were deemed to be outside of the nation, or worse, against it, and thus they were harassed in the streets as a result. A lack of colourful ribbon wasn't the only telltale sign of treasonous behaviour. With the government still trying to enforce judicial reforms, all those who accepted positions in the new judicial system were labelled traitors to the fatherland by the Vassil Assembly itself. These increasingly prominent notions of nation and treason may seem small, they may seem trivial, but they were anything but the revolution would struggle to grapple with both notions over the coming years. What did it mean to be French? Who comprised the French nation? What rights did citizenship infer? What to do with traitors? It was as the aristocratic revolt led by notables and judges made way for a popular revolt that these questions came to the foreground of public debate. And these questions would never be answered. The inability to answer these questions would create deep divisions within revolutionary France. Do you ever get deja vu? I get deja vu. In fact, I feel like I'm having it right now. With Brienne's resignation on the 25th of August, 1788, once again, King Louis found himself without a minister. The total was now 10 controller generals or equivalents in just over 14 years. This time, however, Louis did have some sort of plan. 
The Estate General had been summoned. Hip, hip, hooray. Louis had finally conceded what was almost inevitable after the Day of Tiles and the Vasile Assembly. He had announced what the rebellious notables and the insubordinate parlements had clamoured for for more than a year. But the plan had created more questions than answers. Thanks to the revolutionary composition of the Facile Assembly, the manner in which the Estates General should be constituted was now a heated debate in the streets. Should all three orders vote separately, as was tradition, or should the third have their representation doubled and the Estates General allowed to vote by head instead of by order? These questions would not be an easy one to answer. They would divide public opinion, or perhaps more accurately, they would divide the coalition which had opposed the Crown over recent months and years. The Third Estate and its conservative aristocratic allies in the Parlements would be pitched against one another. These questions, however, weren't the immediate ones that had to be answered. There were others that were more pressing. How to replace Brienne? How to tackle the empty treasury? How to avoid bankruptcy? It was these questions that the king had to answer immediately. And to these questions, the king had only one answer. An answer he disliked. An answer the queen loathed. An answer that many in the royal family outright hated. A Protestant, a commoner, a foreigner. The king had no choice but to recall the people's man, the people's messiah. The king recalled Swiss wonder boy Jacques Necker. Let's be crystal clear. The king detested the fact that he had to summon Necker back from exile. But what else could he do? The people, the parlements, the notables had all sung his praises and begged for his return. The chorus forced the king's hand. The author of the Comte Rendu, the Swiss messiah Jacques Necker, was going to return to France. The reaction to Necker's return from exile was greeted very differently in the upper echelons of Versailles than it was in the streets of Paris. The Queen hated Necker's restoration. Her Majesty penned a letter to the Austrian ambassador on the 20th of August, days before Brienne's departure, making it clear she dreaded the likely summons of the Genevan banker. Less than a week later, Necker's own daughter noted the frosty reception she received from the Queen. I went to the Queen, according to custom, on St. Louis' day. The niece of the disgraced Archbishop was paying her court at the same time. The Queen made it very plain, by the way in which she received the two of us, that she much preferred the minister who was gone to the one who was replacing him. The Queen, sharing the views of many in the royal family, hated the return of Necker. He was an upstart commoner, a heretic who could only be trusted to advance his own agenda. However, outside the upper echelons of the court, many did not share this view, as demonstrated by the next line in Necker's daughter's diary. The courtiers were different, however, for never have so many people come forward to lead me back to my carriage. The people, in short, loved the return of Necker. You'd bloody well hope so, considering they've spent years clamouring for it. Here's how historian Bertha Gardner describes the situation, as well as her opinion on Necker's ability to handle it. Necker's return to office was greeted with a burst of applause from one end of France to the other. His financial ability was relied upon to starve off bankruptcy, and it was known that he had always recalled to oppose the court 
and that he now desired the meeting of the Estates General. But his popularity was due to those causes alone, not to any proof that he had given or could give of his fitness to direct the royal policy. As he failed to comprehend the real causes of the impending revolution, he would be unable to moderate its violence. The most important aspect of that quote is not historian Gardner's bleak assessment of Necker's talents, although that potentially foreshadows what is to come. The most important part of that quote is the violence historian Bertha Gardner refers to. The violence that Necker, or really anyone, failed to contain. The civil unrest which first engulfed many provincial cities and regions after the judicial coup was becoming more and more problematic throughout the entire kingdom. Paris was by no means immune to the disorder this political crisis was creating either. When Brienne was dismissed, effigies of the bishop were burnt in the streets. One effigy was burnt at the base of the statue of King Henry IV. Henry IV was the last assassinated king of France. He was a very popular king. But the burning of a king's minister at the feet of another was nothing but a potent symbol of the deteriorating power of both monarchs and ministers alike. Clashes with the authorities were now commonplace by the end of August 1788. Observing the toxic mix of violence and celebrations, the Gazette Delayed published the following regarding Necker's return. The degree of excitement was such, at the resignation of the Archbishop of Sons, that the people's joy at the appointment of the new minister could not be contained within the limits of order. For three days, sky rockets and other fireworks were fired from the Palais Royal. People even forced the inhabitants of the district to illuminate their houses and, following the English fashion, broke the windows of any that were not lit up. The problem for the government was that this violence didn't end upon Necker's return. The arrival of the Messiah did not herald the arrival of peace and salvation. At the end of August, riots resulted in six guard houses being burnt down to a crisp in Paris. Crowds forced the guards to watch after they compelled them to throw their weapons, their clothes and their personal effects into the flames. Almost a month after Brienne's resignation, the capital was still a powder keg. The government had no choice but to back down in the face of increasingly violent and regular protests by the Parisians. On the 14th of September, Le Bourguignon resigned, and his judicial reforms met the same fate. On the 23rd of September, the Paris Parlement returned to the city. Royal authority was in tatters. Absolutism was clearly dead. Despite fighting it for so long, the king had called an estates general, reinstalled Necker, and fired his leading ministers. A revolution was well and truly underway. A revolution powered by the common people. Before we end this episode, on the eve of the great betrayal of the Third Estate, on the eve of a truly A2 Brutus moment courtesy of the Paris Parlement, it's worthy to take a moment to examine just how much blame we should attribute to Brienne for all this mess. It's easy to blame Brienne for the crumbling of the old regime. He was, after all, the man in charge. But just how much blame should we attribute to the Archbishop is not black and white. It's a matter of grey. Historian Francois Mignet argues forcibly that Brienne should not receive the condemnation which he receives from many other historians. This minister has been most blamed because he came last. Inheriting the faults, the embarrassments of past times, he had to struggle with the difficulties of his position with insufficient means. He tried intrigue and oppression. He banished, suspended, disorganised Parlement, 
everything was an obstacle to him. Nothing aided him. After a long struggle, he sank under lassitude and weakness. I dare not say from incapacity, for had he been more stronger and more skillful, he still would have fallen. It no longer appertained to any one arbitrarily to raise money or to oppress the people. It must be said in his excuse that he had not created that position from which he was not able to extradite himself. His only mistake was his presumption in accepting it. He fell through the fault of Cologne, as Cologne had availed himself of the confidence inspired by Necker for the purpose of his lavish expenditure. The one had destroyed credit, and the other, thinking to re-establish it by force, only destroyed authority. According to historian Francois Mignet, it's not Brienne's fault that France found itself knocking on the doors of anarchy. It's Cologne's. But not everyone agrees with Mignet. The Prussian baron de Grimm wrote at this time, Never was there a minister who showed such talents for throwing everything into confusion as Brienne. He has shaken to pieces the whole political machine in the space of a few months. Thanks to the happy ascendance of his genius, one may truly say that there is not a single public body in France that remains in its place or retains its natural movements. Baron de Grimm's views were shared by many at the time. That Brienne was the root cause of all the ailments which now inflicted France. The unrest, the violence, the bloodshed. As the man in charge, it could be attributed to Brienne and to no other. My two cents on these polar opposite views is this. Firstly, while Cologne does deserve some of the blame historian Francois Mignot assigns to him, he doesn't deserve it all. Many people had actively prevented Cologne from making reasonable and necessary reforms, including, oh yeah, that's right, Brienne himself. It was Brienne that led the notables against Cologne. It was he who was named essentially the de facto leader of the opposition. Had the notables agreed to Cologne's reforms, perhaps the parlements would have been more accommodating. Perhaps the violent unrest France was experiencing, the same unrest which triggered this revolution, could have been avoided. Perhaps France today might be a constitutional monarchy instead of a republic, or perhaps at least not on its fifth republic. Brienne, in cynically opposing Cologne's agenda, only to then embrace most of that same agenda once in power, cannot be absolved of all the blame. Neither, however, can the king for that matter. A man who styled himself as an autocratic monarch, but one who never managed to act like one. I'll rant about Louis's complete and utter inability to seize and drive the agenda another time. Instead, let's wrap up this episode by telling the story of a great betrayal. A betrayal which sets the scene for the coming revolution. By mid-September 1788, the king and his government had been frightened into submission. The unrest and civil disobedience of the commons had forced the government to reinstate the parlements, the summoning of both Necker and the Estates General having not been enough to quell the masses. Such violence, however, did not just frighten the court. It frightened those who yearned for law and order. Most particularly, it frightened those individuals who let the dog off the leash in the first place. It frightened the Parlement of Paris. Like the Parlement of Dauphine, during the Day of Tiles, these judges had no love for mob violence. They harboured no affection for anarchy, no care for chaos. This unrest which had been unfolding was not part of the plan. The moderates in the Parlement of Paris never wanted it to get out of hand, and the conservatives in the Parlement of Paris, led by Dias Premenil, only wanted the Estates General to empower the nobility. 
to allow the blue-blooded aristocrats to regain the power that they had before the centralisation and absolutism of Louis XIV and XV. The violence on the streets were endangering those objectives. Objectives that looked increasingly threatened as the Third Estate became more and more adamant in their calls for double representation and voting by head. The Vassil Assembly had successfully brung the issues of representation to the foreground of public debate, and Dies Premanil and his conservatives knew it. Their dream of aristocratic power was incompatible with the demands of the Third Estate, indeed with the demands of some radical members of the Parlement itself. And so, on the 25th of September, they decided to continue the charade no longer. Up until this point in time, the Parlement of Paris were famous for defending the people. They were identified as being the check on tyrannical absolutism. They were the guardians of the nation's interests. How quickly things can change. Fearing the power and unruliness of the Third Estate, of its talk of nation, sovereignty, treason, the Paris Parlement decided to try to put the dog back on the leash. Two days after reconvening in Paris, the fathers of the nation proved themselves to be like Thanos in their parenting styles. On the 25th of September, 1788, the Parlement of Paris announced that the Estates General would meet as it had in 1614. The three estates would vote by order, and each have an equal number of representatives. In other words, the Third Estate would not control the Estates General. Instead, the privileged orders would control it. A2 Brutus, A2 Parlement. Robbing the Third Estate of the sovereignty it sought, the Parlement had revealed its true colours. Overnight, the Parlement became the enemy of the people. Their self-styled title as champions of the nation, always untenable due to contradictory motives, was revealed for the sham it was. The Parlements may have been a key player in the aristocratic revolt against royal power, but it was the common people themselves that ensured the success of that revolt. If the common people succeeded in changing the policies of the king, what chance did the Parlement have at restraining its now rogue weapon? Once more, the words nation and treason came to the foreground of public debate, but this time the place of the Parlements in those two categories had changed. The Parlement had betrayed its allies. It had betrayed the Third Estate. It had declared war on the people. And it was a war it would lose. Thank you for listening to Episode 7, The Cradle of the Revolution. Next episode, we'll be covering the fallout of the Parlement's betrayal of the common people, Necker's struggle to find a cure to the ailments of the nation, and the creation of lists. What kind of lists, you might ask? Well, lists of grievances. Before you go, if you're a fan of grey history, if you're keen for some more, then there is something you can do to help secure that. Tell people. Spread the word. Anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the grey, please tell them the good news and let them know about grey history. Thank you for listening and have a great day. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.